0: That's a sound that everyone will recognize. It's also a sound to be thankful for. More than half of the world's population doesn't have access to sanitation services that adequately treat waste. It's one of the world's biggest sources of pollution. We take it for granted that everything that goes down the drain flows to a place where it's properly treated, doesn't damage the environment, and of course, doesn't make us sick. But there's increasing worry about the plants and facilities that enable safe water and wastewater treatment. They're the kind of facilities that no one really notices but are part of infrastructure that's critical for society. Like many organizations, information technology in the last two decades has transformed their operations and also increasingly put them at risk of cyber attacks. The Hampton Roads Sanitation District serves 1.7 million people in eastern Virginia. That includes the gigantic Norfolk Naval Base and Camp Perry, where the CIA trains its agents. It runs 100 pumping stations, 9 major plants, and 8 smaller plants. It can treat 249 million gallons of effluent a day. It's also one of the caretakers of the Potomac Aquifer, an ancient source of trillions of gallons of pressurized water, which is the region's main drinking source. Roger Caslow had only been on the job as HRSD's first Chief Information Security Officer for six months in November 2020. On November 17, 2020, he stayed late at the office writing an information security governance document, which covered aspects like audit trail policies and backup standards.
1: Quite literally, I had a my my file. I, I had my document up on my screen the night before the night it happened, and everything was connected in and. Everything's good to I'm like, you know what? I don't need to save this. I'll come back to it tomorrow morning. It was eight o'clock at night when I was leaving the office. I get a call an hour and a half later. Roger, something bad's happened to the window systems. Hmm. Okay. I drive back into the office and that's when the realization that the document that I've been working on for weeks is now gone because it's encrypted.
0: HRSD had become the latest casualty in a growing wave of ransomware. There are increasing concerns about the cybersecurity weaknesses in water and wastewater plants. They're often underfunded. They may run outdated systems and often use automation to save money. But that automation may have also increased their vulnerability to ransomware or nation-state actors. And there are a lot of these plants. There are some 52,000 drinking water plants and 16,000 wastewater systems in the United States. There have been at least four ransomware attacks in the last two years against water and wastewater facilities. Experts fear that tally could increase unless action is taken. This is The Ransomware Files. I'm Jeremy Kirk. In this podcast mini-series, I'm going to talk with those who have navigated their way through a ransomware incident and learn how they fought back and what tips they can pass on to others. No ransomware infection is ever welcomed, but there's invaluable knowledge gained. There should be no shame in getting infected, but it's important to share the lessons. This episode of The Ransomware Files is sponsored by Cofense. Cofense is the leading provider of phishing protection, detection, and response solutions. It's the only company to combine a global network of 30 million people reporting phishing attempts with advanced AI-based automation to find and stop phishing attacks. Stay on until the end of the episode to hear me speak with Tanya Dudley, Strategic Security Advisor at Cofense, and we'll discuss ransomware, phishing, and how to protect yourself from a breach. Roger had clear instructions for his team. Don't turn the machines off, but disconnect them from the network.
1: Knowing what our infrastructure lacked or had or didn't have, I immediately told my engineers, go downstairs and disconnect everything. They said, disconnect everything. I said, everything. If it has an external point, disconnect it. If it's internal connected, disconnect it. I want the servers disconnected from each other, and I want this as a hard disconnect. Everything is hard. Pull plugs, pull plugs, pull plugs. Should we turn it off? No, don't turn it off. Because typically users want to turn off. And from the forensic standpoint, I want that thing up and going in case I need to do a forensics assessment on it. It's still working. And the bad guy still thinks he's in there doing something.
0: Ted Hennepin is a civil engineer by trade. He's been general manager of HRSD for 15 years. He just spent a relaxing weekend with his wife on Kiowa Island in South Carolina when he came back to work.
2: And I'm an early riser and early arriver at work. And so I'd gotten in the car and headed to work and got there before six in the morning. And I'm not fully engaged. so I get to the door and there's a sign, handwritten sign in the door that says, if your computer's off, don't turn it on. If it's on, don't turn it off. I was
0: like, that's really strange. When HRSD was infected, it was already on the path of improving its information security practices. It was in the second year of a five-year plan designed by Gartner, which included the hiring of Roger as its CISO. But of course, as we all know, none of these types of changes happen overnight. HRSD was infected by Ryuk, which if you remember from episode one, is the name of a character in a Japanese manga series called Death Note. Ryuk is a ransomware as a service group. Other cybercriminals use the Ryuk malware and pay a portion of the ransoms to those who develop it. Ryuk has hit corporate targets but also has shown no mercy. Hospitals and medical facilities even in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic have been hit. Ryuk has proved to be one of the most profitable ransomware groups. In January 2021, security researchers estimated it had taken in as much as $150 million since it came on the scene three years prior. But that prominence and profit has been noted. In mid-November 2021, the U.S. Department of Justice announced the arrest of a Russian national named Denis Dubnikov. Dubnikov ran two cryptocurrency trading platforms called Coyote Crypto and EggsChange. He was indicted in August by a grand jury in Oregon on charges of conspiracy to commit money laundering. He's accused of receiving $400,000 worth of Bitcoins that came from Ryuk victims. He's now awaiting extradition to the United States from the Netherlands. Dubnikov's arrest marked some of the first fruits of a big push by the US and other countries to try and hold those involved in ransomware accountable. The attackers had been inside HRSD's systems for three weeks before Ryuk was deployed. An employee had opened an Excel spreadsheet that contained embedded malicious code. That led to the installation of ZLoader, which is a descendant of the infamous Zeus banking malware. So ZLoader is all-purpose malware. It can steal information or install other malware on a system. The employee that was infected had administrative access, which then allowed the attackers to spread deeper into HRSD's systems. That included nesting in one of HRSD's domain controllers, which was known as SSADS3. The attackers also tampered with group policy objects, which are the set of virtual policies in Active Directory. They modified the policy in a way that told HRSD's antivirus software, which was McAfee at the time, to ignore certain suspicious activity. Eventually, the attackers used ZLoader to plant a cobalt strike beacon on the system. Cobalt Strike is a penetration testing toolkit and its beacon is an agent that's deployed on a remote machine. The beacon is kind of like a swiss army knife with a bunch of tools that allow an attacker to explore and persistently stay in a target. Eventually, Ryuk was pushed out to 45 unique systems across HRSD's network. However, its operational technology, which are the systems that control the actual wastewater treated, were unaffected. Long before Ryuk entered the scene, Ted says that HRSD ensured there was a strong division between IT and OT.
2: We took a pretty strong stand with our operations folks that they just weren't going to be able to access the network and control um, critical processes remotely in any old fashion. Um, and so th- that was that battle between OT and IT that, that went on for a long time. And, and we basically just locked it down and said, the only way we're ever going to allow control is on a, you know, an HRSD box. You're not going to be able to go through the internet on your home computer and go change something. It's going to be it's going to be really well controlled to make this work. And and that frustrated the heck out of our operations folks for a long time. I think they appreciate it now.
0: When an organization gets infected with anything, there's a good chance that someone has clicked on a malicious attachment. And forensic investigations can often get down to the person who did the click almost to the minute when it happened. Ted thought it might have been him.
2: I'm sure Roger told you at the end of the day... Um, this was someone opening an attachment. Um, so it, it, the socialization, which we've stepped up tremendously, but if you put yourself back into that time frame that I started with of six to eight months of uh, pandemic response, remote work, people doing things differently, it, it's no surprise that at the end of 2020 saw this huge uptick in ransomware attacks because I think everybody was ripe for it um especially on the socialization end because everybody's in a bit of a COVID fog and i don't want to use that as an excuse but i think it set the stage for an environment that was um rich for people opening things they shouldn't have not necessarily paying full attention in fact for a long time after this thing uh when it first happened and the you know at the time it was um CrowdStrike was doing their digging through to find out exactly, you know, the keystrokes and what happened. I kept waiting for them to say it was, you know, me, you know, I was like, my, ni- my nightmare was it was going to be general manager opened something he wasn't supposed to in an
0: email. It turned out that Ted wasn't the one who clicked on the Excel spreadsheet, but CrowdStrike figured out who did. So uh, awkward moment time. Do you tell the person that they were the one who opened the door for a ransomware attack? So, I actually did. Once we figured out exactly what happened, um,
2: there was curiosity on the uh, incident response team, everybody was working on it, especially on the, the CrowdStrike folks and others, to understand what she was looking at at the time, the person. So, I had that uncomfortable phone call, and um, she was heartbroken and crying. And, you know, it's like, hey, it's nothing, <laughs> it's not your fault. You know, this could have happened to any of us. And I kept telling her, I said I was waiting it for it to be me, but um, and so we've got a description of of the file she opened and why she opened it, and um, you know, I think again uh, in that COVID fog and and remote work environment, it is not surprising, and I'm, I'm frankly surprised we had we didn't have more problems. So, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a challenging conversation uh, to have to have that conversation with somebody, but um, I think we managed it the best we could and she's a great employee like one of the one of our superstars
0: ryuk took out a whole lot of hrsd's window systems there was no email customers couldn't pay their bills and hrsd bills hundreds of thousands of accounts the customer call center was down as well as the customer self-service facility hrsd also relies on water meter readings from localities in order to bill for their sewerage and those connections had been severed as well Communication inside HRSD was hampered because its internal SharePoint site was down. All of this posed immediate problems for Layla Rice. Layla is the director of communications for HRSD and a former broadcaster and journalist. And so, when you heard that, or how did you find out that the district computers had been infected with ransomware?
3: <laughs> I got a very early morning phone call, I think shortly. After or before my morning alarm, I can't recall which, my general manager, Ted Hennepin, called and told me. And I thought he was joking me. And I'm like, you're kidding. And he said, I wish I was. I have no access to any resources. We have no, I can't get on our website to try and put any kind of messaging out. I have no email address that is recognizable. So I'm going to, so we have to start thinking, how are we going to communicate this information?
0: So she turned to the telephone. She contacted organizations such as the Hampton Roads Planning District Commission to help get the word out. She also relied on external channels and a social media app called Nextdoor. She and others in HRSD set up new work email addresses and media releases following the incidents bear Layla's Gmail address. One primary concern from the public was whether any customer information had been compromised and if its actual operational systems were affected.
3: You know, that was critical to let people know that their information, any billing information, because we have that secured, it's on it's on a third party, so we don't have any of that, none of that system. That was key information to let them know. Uh, also had to make sure that they were aware of Billing delays and not to be, you know, not to feel like they were going to be penalized. The systems that operate our services were separate. So there was never any interruption to our wastewater treatment, there was never any danger of public health or environmental damage or anything like that, because we could continue providing the service that we provide.
0: For internal communication, she drafted a daily newsletter that was distributed as best it could be. HRSD's website still worked, and Layla was able to send news posts to their website provider who would then post those updates on the site. And there are other channels for outreach as well, such as Twitter. Roger says it all worked.
1: Our communications director, Layla Rice, she was a rock star. She managed all that communications out. She took care of all that stuff because, again lack of a formal incident response communication plan in place, we were shooting from the hip. Now, we shot from the hip with a 12-gauge gun on the side of a barn. I think we hit it pretty well.
0: Layla says a takeaway from those trying circumstances is that organizations should give thought to how they would communicate if none of the normal systems work.
3: It's really making sure that you have a backup plan. And I can't, you know, communication, I know when it's, when everything is down, it's still, it's still necessary. Ensuring that updates are provided both to your external customers, your internal customers.
0: Other departments had their challenges as well. Anasia Burl is HRSD's accounts payable supervisor. HRSD has lots of suppliers who, of course, still wanted to be paid even though there was a ransomware incident and some were concerned. However, Anasia says HRSD had help from its banking partner in making automated clearinghouse payments and also using e-payables, which are essentially card payments. She says vendors were generally understanding.
3: Well, I think for us in AP, it was really um, one day at a time. Just making sure we kept the line of communication open with our vendors and suppliers, um, giving them as much information as we could at where we were at in the process. And we had some suppliers that needed to get paid and we had some suppliers who was like, "Okay, you know, when you're up and running, let us know. So they were very understanding. We have really good working relationships with them.
0: HRSD's recovery kicked off with a call to Beasley, its insurer. HRSD had taken out cyber insurance several years prior, and Ted at the time thought it might be a bit of a waste. He now says that after Ryuk, it was one of the best decisions HRSD had made. The insurer organized other providers that immediately went to work. CrowdStrike worked on incident response. A firm in Virginia called Mox5 started to rebuild systems. Ted says a robust insurance policy was critical to getting HRSD running again in just three weeks, and it helped take the pressure off HRSD's own employees.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and I, I kind of knew this from previous disasters in other areas, but it becomes a huge pride of your employees first it's been damaged. You know, you were attacked, you've been taken down. And so your whole uh, IT department is is reeling because, you know, they take it very personally. And um, But then they want to do the recovery all themselves. And so it took a while to get agreement that we're going to need staff augmentation even, even remotely, you know, that they've got to give up some of this because they kept wanting to, I'll take all this and I'll take all that. And it's like, Come well, on now, we we, we got to get up fast. You know, we got to get back. Let's get some more resources in here, and and it, it was having to help them get past that personal pride. One, it's been ding because they got in, and two, you know, they really wanted to rebuild this all on their own. And I, I know they had the the ability. We just didn't have the enough resources to make that happen. And
0: this is probably a good point to talk a little bit more about cyber insurance. The first cyber insurance policy was written back in the days of Netscape and Ask Jeeves. It was 1997, and it was called the Internet Security Liability Policy, according to a story in March 2018 in the Insurance Journal. The policy was launched at a party in Honolulu, appropriately and prophetically called Breach on the Beach. Many organizations have since considered cyber insurance essential to mitigate the costs of a breach. The popularity of such plans has grown with the rise in cyber criminal activity. But now it's grown so bad, it's reached a tipping point and insurers are in the midst of a sea change. The number one reason for a cyber insurance claim right now is due to a ransomware incident. That means cyber insurance is getting a lot more expensive. In August 2021, insurer AIG said it had increased its cyber insurance premiums up to 40% while lowering coverage limits. And it looks like other companies may follow suit. New policies are getting harder to secure and renewals are sometimes being rejected. Lloyd's of London was recently discouraging its syndicate members from even taking on new cyber insurance clients. Ransomware operators quickly caught on that cyber insurance policies were covering ransoms, and they've openly said that that made those kinds of organizations preferred targets. Insurers are increasingly requiring that organizations meet baseline cybersecurity standards, but of course, cyber defense is ever-challenging and changing. Roger says he saw some of this coming.
1: For $15,000, we got like a... Almost two hundred thousand dollars back. Insurance companies are out for a profit. I mean, who isn't, right? They're in a business. Business is profit motivated. If they don't understand the business they're going into, they will get fleeced, right? You will get fleeced every time. And they, the insurance providers, again, as I mentioned before, they didn't understand the environment they're going into, and then ransomware hits in mass.
0: What may not be good for insurance companies has been quite helpful to policyholders. Insurance has pulled many organizations out of the muck of a ransomware incident, and it helped HRSD get back and running in around three weeks. That's a pretty quick recovery, but it was aided by some good fortune, such as the fact that not all of HRSD's systems were vulnerable to Ryuk. Less than half of HRSD's systems were Windows. Many of its business systems were Linux and Unix, which stored its employee data and ran its ERP system. Also, its backups, which ran on Dell's EMC Avamar platform, were not in terrible shape. Some were corrupted or encrypted, but Rogers says they were able to get go back a few weeks to get clean copies. And then sometime while HRSD was getting back up on its feet, Ted says the FBI got wind of its troubles.
2: Yeah, because this is the other maybe extremely, uh, a surprise, an interesting twist. So um, as we were uh, early on, we didn't, because we are not part of a, a city or a county or any, any, we don't have no association with a law enforcement agency. Uh, and so unlike a lot of city organizations that get hit, you know, their police departments immediately get involved. And I don't even know how the FBI found out that we were um, battling. This was in the early days. And I, I, uh, I get a call saying, hey, the FBI wants to, to talk to us. And so I called the attorneys who our insurance had hooked us up with. We were running everything through the insurance um, attorney office, and today, you know, FBI wants to come in. Do I have to let them in? What you know? What's the what's the right answer here?" The advice I got was, "We haven't lost any information. I think in Virginia, if you if you know you've lost information, you've got to bring law enforcement in. But if you haven't lost any information that you that you know of, um, you don't have to bring law enforcement in."
0: The FBI is now very, very interested in ransomware, and this year, fighting ransomware has become a top law enforcement and national security priority. The White House estimates that ransomware payments amounted to more than $400 million in 2020 and at least $81 million for the first quarter of 2021. This year, President Joe Biden's administration launched an interagency task force to tackle ransomware. That includes tracing virtual currency payments, disrupting ransomware actors through offensive operations, and pressuring countries such as Russia that are believed to be knowingly harboring ransomware actors. To move quickly against ransomware actors, however, the FBI has said it needs victims to quickly step forward. As a case in point, it cites the assistance it gave to software developer Kaseya during one of 2021's most notable ransomware incidents. Kaseya developed remote monitoring and management software called the Virtual System Administrator, the software is used by managed service providers to manage the systems of their clients. An affiliate of the R-Evil ransomware gang exploited vulnerabilities in the on-premises version of VSA. They then used VSA to infect the clients of those managed service providers with ransomware up to 60 managed service providers were affected as well as 1500 of their clients. Shortly after the attack in July 2021, the FBI obtained the universal decryption key that could unlock data from all Kaseya victims. It was an unprecedented revelation and one sign that the US government, in cooperation with other foreign partners, was moving to offensively strike back. In November 2021, there was more Kaseya related news. The Justice Department announced it had indicted a Ukrainian national, Yaroslav Vasinsky for the attack. Vysinski was arrested in October 2021 in Poland. At the press conference announcing Vyszynskiy's arrest, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said that Kaseya's early cooperation in the incident was key. Tim says that he understands the FBI's perspective, but it brings with it a layer of complication. The FBI investigates crime and doesn't do incident response or help victims rebuild systems. There also appeared to be no legal obligation on HRSD's part to get the agency involved. It didn't appear the attackers had exfiltrated any data. HRSD's lawyers recommended to touch base with the FBI later after the remediation work had been done. And
2: we were maybe four or five days into the recovery at this point. He said, they're going to want to stop and interview everybody. And, you know, we were hitting our stride at this point. And you're really going to get slowed down and they're not going to bring value. Um, They aren't going to be able to help you recover. They're just trying to understand who did it. And they really like to trace the money. And um, his recommendation was for me to call back and say, hey, we'll be happy to share the results once we know what happened. But, you know, we don't want you to help us right now. That was a pretty uncomfortable phone call. You know, I'd call the head of the Norfolk office of the FBI and tell him, hey, we'll get back to you. But uh, thanks. And he continued to follow up. uh, And then we finally did connect him uh, once we had the full report on the, the incident report and were able to share with them exactly what happened. But they weren't that interested. I think they purely want to follow the money if you're paying the ransom.
0: You may have guessed by now that HRSD did not pay the ransom, but it wasn't so clear cut at first. Ransomware events are of course stressful Ted says that HRSD bills for some 480,000 accounts, and the billing systems were down. He feared a repeat of something that occurred in 2007. In that year, HRSD changed its billing system. The conversion didn't go well, and it turned into a press and public relations disaster. Ted knew the ransomware situation could start to go south fast as well, so he was keen to get systems up and running. In this case, HRSD knew the decryption key would work, It had sent a couple of encrypted files to the threat actors who did return the decrypted files.
2: Oh, it was a serious consideration. I I was putting a lot of pressure on the team to give me time. Every passing hour, I was pushing hard to say, you know, what is the faster path here? Is it, if if paying the ransom's faster and, and it'll work, you know, I'm all in, I need the fastest solution. And I, you know, so I'd sit in all the meetings, listen to all the experts and then give them another six hours or 12 hours to, to do more work to figure out which which would be the fastest. And they finally convinced me um, that the fast, that even if we paid the ransom, it would take a significant amount of time using the decryption key to um, get all this back running. And even then they weren't sure you know how all that would take. So um, they convinced me at that point that, that we could recover from backups. So they could rebuild the system faster than we could do it um, from, from the decryption key. So the decision was not a financial decision, it was purely a, a timing decision.
0: Roger jokes that he wished they would have just paid to get the document back he was working on the night the ransomware struck.
1: I just want my PowerPoint presentation back. Can I have that back? Can we pay them a little money to get that? Um, can I have the key for that specific file?
0: Over the last two decades or so, water and wastewater plants have moved to automation, webs of remote sensors, programmable logic controllers, and SCADA systems that can be controlled and monitored by computers from afar. Those technologies have allowed for cost savings, fewer employees, and conveniences such as remote management. Valves and pumps operate automatically, and chemical management systems can make their own autonomous adjustments based on readings. The savings from those automation investments, though, were never put towards cybersecurity because in those days there wasn't an obvious cybersecurity threat. That's changed. In October 2021, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued an advisory about ongoing cyber threats to water and wastewater systems. In a two-year period, there were ransomware attacks against facilities in California, Maine, Nevada, and New Jersey. There were other incidents as well. In March 2019, a former employee of a water and wastewater facility in Kansas used access credentials that had not been revoked to remotely access one of the facility's computers. More recently, in February 2021, a small town in Florida called Oldsmar went public with a disturbing tale. An intruder gained access to a TeamViewer remote access account connected to a human-machine interface. That HMI was used by the facility to remotely control parts of the plant. The intruder increased the level of sodium hydroxide to be added to the water from 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million. So sodium hydroxide, or lye, is used to make the water more alkaline, but too much lye can be caustic, and as some of you may already know, it's the main ingredient in drain cleaner. Fortunately, city officials said a plant operator actually noticed that a mouse pointer was mysteriously moving on its own, indicating someone was in the system and tampering with the plant controls. Aside from operational technology systems, plants also just have normal IT systems. They run Microsoft Office and Active Directory and have emails, applications, and billing systems and phone systems. Like any organization, these systems are potentially vulnerable to exploitation. And it's the intersection of those IT systems and OT systems that many experts say poses a national security threat. If your adversaries can meddle with water say from jumping from IT systems to OT systems, it can have a lot of downstream effects, so to speak. It's not just ransomware either, it's also nation states. Mark Montgomery is a retired rear admiral. He is senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. The FDD is a nonpartisan think tank. He's also former executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which was formed in 2019 to develop ideas to help defend the United States against cyber attacks. Mark says that water may represent one of the most insecure sectors as far as critical infrastructure. Here, he describes a worst case scenario involving the U.S. water supply and a cyber
4: attack. You know, my ability to either turn your system off remotely or probably even more dangerously, change the chemical balance of the water, change the alarm set points, introduce uh, unhealthy water into the potable water system. It is a possibility. And I know we like to not say that in public, but it is a possibility. And that possibility introduces significant risk, that likelihood times consequence. Because here's my worst case, my worst fear in terms of the drinking water system in America. My worst fear is that an adversary attacks four or five water, um, you know, water pot, drinking water systems simultaneously around the country. And you start to get reports from four or five different areas that the water is bad for elderly or for young or just in general unhealthy and don't drink it most people don't believe that they can tell from the taste of their tap water whether they're you know they're drinking good tap water or bad tap water so what you introduce is a loss of credibility into the drinking water system that's the worst case
0: there are many issues in play here. Knowledge gaps, technical debt, the fact that most critical infrastructure is run by private companies or state and local governments, which adds layers of complication for coordination, and of course, funding challenges. Mark says that people don't want to see their water and wastewater bills go
4: up. We're talking about the, the real witch's brew of trying to fix things, a mix of you know, uh, water utilities with limited excess capital. Um, you know, and most citizens are like, hey, I, I like my water and I have no intention of paying higher rates, um, you know, and uh, you figure it out internally how you're going to pay for this new cybersecurity problem. And that's just not reasonable. In November 2021,
0: Mark and the FTD released a set of recommendations to strengthen the cybersecurity of the water and wastewater sector. The recommendations are set to be passed onto lawmakers and hopefully translated into legislation. One of the recommendations is to give a boost to the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA is the agency that is responsible for the cybersecurity of the water and wastewater infrastructure. According to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, there have been concerns that there's been insufficient coordination between the EPA and other stakeholders in water utilities security. Mark says the FDD would like to see more EPA grants given to the water sector to go towards cybersecurity. The EPA should also be better resourced in order to fill its role as the water sector's risk management agency.
4: So the first thing is we have to resource and empower the part of EPA that's responsible for the cybersecurity to succeed as the water sector's sector risk management agency. And it's the government lead in this, in this area. So first, resource EPA properly, which means EPA's got to put its hand up and ask for the right amount of resources. I, I will tell you, I think EPA routinely asks for about one third of the amount of money they need to do this right because they want to spend their money elsewhere. And I think at some point, I, I acknowledge the important work EPA does in climate change and in drought issues and in rising sea levels issues and in natural disaster issues, but And this is the problem with cybersecurity. We're competing with like the four signs of the apocalypse when then we say, but you also (laughs) need to find cybersecurity. But we need to find cybersecurity or you'll have a problem worse than those other four in your backyard right now. One of the
0: FDD's recommendations is to direct the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, which is known as CISA, to increase support for the water sector. And in fact, CISA has already been helping James Craddy is acting regional director for CISA Region Three, which covers the Mid-Atlantic region, ranging from Pennsylvania down to the District of Columbia.
5: The importance of cybersecurity is uh, just as important as uh, physical security uh, around a sensitive and uh, critical function such as water and wastewater. Right, so we have to we have to go out and establish buy-in at the top. Right, there has to be a culture of security and an importance that comes from say the board of directors or the owners and operators of these companies to say, Hey, this is important to us. Right. And move that forward. And I think a big part of what you said with the small staff, it can be even more challenging, especially if you're looking at using a third party vendor or third party contractor. Um, to manage a lot of your uh, security or your infrastructure technology and infrastructure that you run your plant on, right?
0: James says that CISA does assessments of such facilities which often result in a candid view of risks and vulnerabilities.
5: Investment in water infrastructure and wastewater infrastructure is all over the map in this country. Some places have very high-tech facilities, others have done just a little and have not reinvested. So they've made an initial investment But may not keep up with those investments going forward, right? So there's a lot of dated systems out of out there that may not be supported anymore.
0: The money issue is a problem, of course, but James says there's lots that organizations can do to improve their baseline cybersecurity that doesn't cost a lot.
5: I would say the first thing that we recommend, our cybersecurity advisors recommend, when they go out and they and they meet with folks, is what can you do initially that's low cost, no cost. A lot of times, low tech solutions on your system and are you doing those? Because a lot of times it's that initial employee sitting somewhere that does something that makes it easier for a threat actor, a nefarious actor to get into your system. Right. So do the top five things first. Don't click on any suspicious links. If you are using a remote desk protocol, it needs to be secure and you need to monitor it. You gotta what you have to watch your systems. Make sure your operating systems and your software are kept up-to-date and that you're patching on those systems as well. Additionally, use strong passwords and use multi-factor authentication whenever you possibly can, right? That uh, multi-factor authentication alone can reduce the risk of a cyber attack by 99.9%. And all the things that I just described don't cost a lot of money for organizations to do. And a lot of organizations aren't doing all of those.
0: About a year on from the ransomware attack, HRSD has much stronger defenses in place. Its backup regime has been revamped. Its IT and OT is even more rigidly separated. Its access controls have been closely scrutinized and bolstered. And it's using new security software and providers to help detect attacks. It also has improved its communication strategy in a time of crisis. In reflection, Roger has an interesting view of the incident. It was painful at the time, but perhaps needed. To be honest,
1: I think every organization needs at least one uh, ransomware incident in their in their, in their their life. I know people won't say that they want it. Nobody really wants it. But I think you kind of need it. It's kind of like, you know, we all need to work out a little bit more and eat leafy greens.
0: Roger says the commitment of everyone in very trying circumstances pulled HRSD through.
1: My leadership and my management support was amazing. My general manager, Ted Hennepin, amazing man, super supportive. My CIO, super supportive. Our staff, they, although not security experts, they came in and they did what they were needed to do when they needed to do it, right? And that's the important part because security protection is not all about just security professionals.
0: It's about the whole team, right? If you enjoyed this episode of The Ransomware Files, please share it on your social media platform of choice. If you would like to participate in this project, please get in touch with me. My DMs are open on Twitter and I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm looking for other people, organizations, and companies that can share their unique experiences for the benefit of all until ransomware, hopefully, becomes a thing of the past. Next up is a chat with our sponsor for this episode, CoFence. Thanks for sticking around for the sponsored portion of the ransomware files. It's my pleasure to be speaking today with Tanya Dudley, who's a strategic security advisor with Cofense. Thanks for dropping by again, Tanya.
6: Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Happy to chime in on this one again.
0: So I I was really excited to do an episode that kind of dealt with critical infrastructure. And I think there's lots of really interesting bits uh, in this particular episode. What stands out to you about it?
6: So what I was most impressed with is that how they talked about The fact that they stood firm on not um, allowing remote access into some of those control systems, right? We see, you know, OT and IT and blending of, you know, systems making it easy for um, administrators to remote into systems. But the fact that they stood firm on... You know, no, we're not going to allow that remote access without you know a lot of controls that they put in place and keeping that network segmentation because that really is what helped them um, in the end to have that ransomware spread over into that OT environment and so critical from you know preventing a further disaster with um, the actual water system. So I think they they did a lot of things proactively just out of having good um, good security mindset in you know creating their environment.
0: Yes, and they did that before any of this happened too. They realized that that was kind of the key. It's like, okay, we can't, we have to stop the jump.
6: Yeah, and it's, it's also a hard conversation that you know, having been a security architect in the past, it's a hard conversation to have with the business that you know they want to be able to be efficient and do things that are easy, right? But um, but then stepping in with that security mindset of you know we still have to look out for the business and protecting our. Our consumers,
0: and we also hear how the organization was infected. And this was an employee that clicked on a rigged Excel spreadsheet. This is a very sort of common scenario that needs leads to an initial foothold. Um, and the general manager of HRSD, Ted hennefin actually had a conversation with the employee who clicked on that Excel spreadsheet. And I know when we were talking earlier in preparation for this, uh, you have a lot of interesting insight into how organizations are dealing with, with this sort of thing. What do you see? What do you see around organizations and their phishing simulations, and and what are they? What, what kind of pressure are they putting their employees under?
6: You know, this was an interesting one. My heart felt um, for that individual right as you know he was trying to have that conversation with her, um, and her reaction of, I, you know, I, am I in trouble? Am I going to get fired? Um, so often, I am talking to many customers who have that want to or already have punitive programs in place, and so if you can imagine that. If you have this um, environment where you're you're already shaming people for failing their training, it is just training when we do simulations. Um what happens when a real incident is happening, happening, right? They're not likely to come tell you, hey, something looks odd. I mean, we heard we heard the other one where they they noticed that the mouse was, you know acting differently, right? So yes, the, they're the ones that, that are frontline that are noticing something's odd, right? They're the ones that you want to tell you something. Um, so I have heartburn every time I hear somebody want to have that program or they want to, you know, up to leading up to firing somebody, um, for clicking on a simulation. Now, most of them aren't like you click once and you're done, right? They're, they're stepped in phase programs, but it's still, it creates this environment where people are not willing to tell you when something bad happened, that you really need to know exactly what happened. It helps with that investigation and how you can isolate and proactively, right? That's why we encourage, um, you know, not only do I ed- identify this fish, but making it easy for them to report because if they if the incident response team can get, you know, that those early indicators, as you yes. know, there's like something something happening in our environment, um, the more, you know, the quicker they can, you know, mitigate that or put out that incident from even happening.
0: I mean, it absolutely blows my mind that there's punitive uh, action taken against people who fail a phishing test because I think the you know the prevailing wisdom is well, users you know users training is good of course to be more aware of things that look odd, but it's of course it's nothing that's going to be foolproof. The technology controls aren't foolproof. The human controls aren't foolproof. So I mean, how how pervasive do you see people you know I guess subject to <laughs> punitive action for failing a phishing simulation?
6: We see it quite a bit. Um, to the fact that I'm actually Doing some research on it now to, you know, to kind of help those um, because it's not usually that awareness person, right? They have the empathy for the user and they get it. It usually is pressure from above of we don't, you know, leadership or the board saying, hey, what are you doing about your program? We don't wanna be that one that's on the front page because of an incident, because of somebody clicking on something. At the same time, what we see when it comes to real phishing emails is that the threat actors have gotten a lot better. Not only are they scraping emails from inboxes because um because they've stolen creds, right? They're watching those inboxes for real messages and then using a reply chain um, into that existing thread, but they're also mimicking those cloud services that we are using now that we've, you know, migrated all of our services to the cloud and we have these standard, you know, messages that come out say, hey, you have a document or, you know, here's this password reset or how do you download this thing? Or here, I'm going to, you know, give you a, I'm paying you through, we transfer or transfer now. Um, That it make it's really difficult for that end user to figure out, do we use this service? Is this legitimate? You know, so there's a big struggle in, I just need to I need to do my my job, right? But email is that communication link that makes it really hard to figure out is this real or is it a fish?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been fooled by things before. I mean, everybody's, I think, at one point or another, been caught off guard. And I think, um, you know, as Ted Hennepin the general manager of HRSD pointed out that this also happened, their particular ransomware incident happened six months after the, you know, the pandemic had kind of changed all, uh, you know, there was lots of remote work and people were working at home and he just kind of described, I think he called it a fog. Uh, You know, everybody was in this kind of COVID fog and probably a little bit more vulnerable uh, than they would have been normally.
6: That's right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, uh, we see fewer and fewer attachments getting through. So, you know, you know, maybe an Excel spreadsheet, right? If you don't, if if it's not a known bad, but you know, we've started to see Z loader, you know, getting detected a little bit better. They're still putting it on a website that you know we use cloud services, and so here, just download this web, download it directly from this website, and then you know, it's a common tool that we use in our business day to day of an Excel spreadsheet.
0: And I just wanted to ask you about, um, rather than, you know, sort of punitive action, sort of positive reinforcement. And, you know, it's sort of like in human behavior, it always seems like the the positive encouragement works better than the punitive action. Is that hold true for phishing uh, simulations as well?
6: You know, I've, I've looked at people who have some really great programs with rewards, um, and it's that carrot versus stick. And we do see that, you know, like I haven't really started studying the data yet. I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating that. Just looking at a few of the customers that I've looked at who have rewards program where they encourage that reporting is that's the real um, method mechanism that we want you to do when you get a fish. Um, they do have more engagement in their program. They do have people sending over real fish to say, you know, here's here's this is, looks suspicious. Um, is it real or not? The other thing that we, within one of our products, we actually send a response back to the user. So if you can imagine being a finance person and you have this invoice that says I you need to pay it, it's past due, um, but they think something looks off on it, and you send it off to the security team, and you don't hear from them, they're more likely going to just go interact with that, right? Because they got a deadline to hit. Yes. But you know, but giving them that response back, closing that loop to say, hey, this is this was bad don't interact with it. You know, we, you know, go ahead and just delete this or, you know, we're going to remove this for you. Um, so, you know, it, that, that response back is also a training moment too, right? Like, Oh, that's, that was just spam. You don't need to do anything with it. So that encouraging and closing that loop and helping them just, you know, partner with them to let them know, like they're the front lines, they understand the business. And, um, and I often would tell uh, my security incident team, um, If you don't know how to process uh, an invoice or write a journal entry or make a stock trade, like that's their job isn't to know security um, because you don't know their job either. So it's, you know, it's this kind of thing of not everybody is going to be a cybersecurity expert and know exactly what's legit and what's not.
0: Yes, absolutely. And as a final question for you, um, I think it was, uh, Rear Admiral, uh, retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery was talking about the funding challenges in sort of water and wastewater facilities. It's like they can't raise rates easily. It's hard for them to issue bonds. Um, what tips would you give for underfunded organizations to defend better against phishing attacks?
6: Yeah. So the number one thing that we see when it comes to phishing, that the type of fish that we see is credential fish, right? Because if they can get access to your credentials, they can get access to your systems to then further launch further, you know, more phishing attacks, or um, you know, be able to you know do some reconnaissance that can then you know later lead to ransomware. So. Um, by far, um, MFA enable two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication is the best um, way to protect against those, um, and it's usually the easiest because most of your infrastructure already has that capability for you to do that, um, and a minimum, start with your high-risk or um, system admins to be able to... Um, to at least protect the highly sensitive um, systems and in, in infrastructure. Hopefully, some of this critical infra- or the infrastructure bills that we've been passing. You know, there's been a lot of focus on cybersecurity this year. So, hopefully, that can you know bleed down into all of these different um, facets of our critical infrastructure across the nation.
0: Tanya, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you so much for sponsoring the ransomware files.
6: Thanks for having us, Jeremy.